Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. Ironically, the biggest news story of our time is killing off the industry that exists to report it. Although, to be honest, newsprint newspapers across the U.S. were already in the process of dying before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. It's one of the stories I want to discuss with journalist Bob Henley, who reports on political and economic developments for Salon, the chief leader, and other news organizations, and on public radio, including this show. And I'm very pleased that Bob Henley could join us again today. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, it's always a pleasure talking with you, and I always uh, get a lot of more interesting information uh, out of it. So uh, I'm not doing you a favor, Bob. Um, but I also want to get to some other major news stories later in New York City. The mayoral election is slowly gaining steam with lots of candidates leading up to the uh, Democratic and Republican primaries on June 21st. And the heat is being turned up on Governor Cuomo. But let's talk about newspapers. Aren't some of the problems newspapers are facing these days due to things like distribution issues because many retail stores have closed? Well, it's a it's a combination of um, the change in technology, but also the fact that I guess in my entire adult lifetime, um, capital has been permitted to just do whatever it wanted, uh, and so you have a situation where moneyed interests, which have rented both political parties, uh, maybe the Democrats less than Republicans, but what you've seen is the ability of corporations to consolidate their power and to uh, take advantage of this technological moment and buy up media outlets. And when a deregulatory environment that we've seen with both, I mean, it goes back to Reagan, so both parties have been implicated. You've seen the ability of corporations to buy TV stations and radio stations, which uh, is important to note, uh, are the public's property and are licensed as a privilege but over the last 20 to 30 years, it became real estate and the public got and the public interest got closed out by the death of um, equal time provision, the end of public affairs requirements. At the same time, the same thing was happening with newspapers. So when I came into the news business uh, through the loading dock door in the 1970s for the Ridgewood News in Bergen County, I came in as a compositor working in the typesetting uh, which is a, a thing that doesn't exist that involved dozens of people. Those jobs were all eliminated and it was not like reporters, which I then became, got additional pay. So what happened is corporations moved in, Wall Street debt mongers came in and then basically consolidated newsrooms, got rid of all those jobs and put all of that money in their pocket and then proceeded to buy even more newspapers and gut local news. So. That's why, for instance, today is a very important day because throughout North Jersey, very brave journalists that work for the record, um, the Daily Record and the Herald News, all tried and true local community newspapers that are owned by Gannett. It's their last day to go and vote through the NRLB election process to join, to create a union. And this is now probably the hottest part of what's going on in terms of organized labor. Uh, which is unions uh, in the CWA um, Writers Guild and then the Writers Guild that is based in the West Coast. This is really the cutting edge right now of a way of countering the excess influence of corporations uh, and these Darth Vader type uh, enemies of local news. 
Yeah, the largest newspaper conglomerate in the United States, the owner of one in five newspapers. Yeah, yeah, and and so uh, and then also um, that just gives you one picture, and and many their influence is even greater than that suggests. And so I don't think it's any accident that with the death of local authenticated news, which is the the individuals that go out and hold uh, officials accountable that we've seen the rise of mass ignorance on the scale that it's a threat to national security as we saw on January 6th and then throughout the last year of the pandemic where basic public health information, even today on WABC radio, 770, a monster, right? Is in the hands of right-wing reactionaries. Right now, a commercial station that's licensed through the public has been passing bad information and a racist subtext and continues to do that on the airwaves, which belongs to the public. Now, as far as newspapers are concerned, hasn't been a drop off in advertising uh, and, and a stronger reliance of the public on online and cable TV news sources. So maybe that's why they've cut back to some degree on, uh, on the kinds of things that they've done, the kind of content that we uh, used to get from them locally, especially. This is, without getting into the weeds on this, a lot of this has to do with the change in the way that we consume information. And so what you do have is an increasing reliance on um, uh, online platforms and aggregation. And so- They've even switched to digital only publication. Right, and then as a consequence, this has meant that another uh, challenge here is that historically newspapers even up until the current day, their fallback revenue strategy was something called legal notices, which is the requirement in law at every level of government and with independent authorities that they buy space in local papers that to announce things like job openings, contract requirements. And so there's an increasing pressure to do away with that. Um, and so there's a, then there's also a, a, a problem there because if we just leave it to local governments to be the only place where this information is published, then you lose a critical check and balance, which is having an independent entity read, proofread, and print these things and keep a record of what the government said. So these are not inconsequential matters. Uh, and then also, I think that the other thing we've lost here is the local accountability. And so while it's true the technology has changed, the need and requirement for local individuals I mean, let's face it, the moment that we've had of accountability with George Floyd started because one brave young woman continued to videotape the scene. To my knowledge, she wasn't part of any media organization. So that accountability was because of the conscience act of one individual. So we need to have a community uh, press renaissance rooted in that activism, but that has local distribution and that can fund um, a way of, of just basic, uh, basic living for reporters to do that work. Because what we've seen is a, a loss of accountability. Uh, we don't have, you know, when I was started doing this in the 70s and 80s, driving around jurisdictions and going in affirmatively to police stations and asking to see the police blog, that work has to continue. Whatever facet you want, whatever you want to call it, that work is not getting done right now like it needs to be done. Didn't you once work for something called DNA Info? No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Oh. I can, they, okay. The funny thing is things can get reproduced places. I mean, 
that's the craziest thing about this. I write something for Insider NJ, and it appears in Salon, Portside, all over the place, but I don't necessarily, I didn't actually, you know, file it for that outlet. Well, it was shut down immediately after the reporting staff successfully unionized. Um, has that become a standard practice in the industry? Well, this was a this was a kind of sad chapter, and the Gothamist was part of that, a great um, uh, media organization that had this kind of authentic reporting that was web-enabled and very savvy and very popular, and it's gone on to live another incarnation at WNYC. Um, but that's exactly what happened. You had a situation where the writers organized, and then this is what happens, right? Uh, the, they, they, the guy that owned it shut it down and then, you know, moved on. And so that's, that's the kind of thing you see where, and another way this shows up is uh, once you have corporations able to buy these things and control them entirely, uh, the journalists often, um, and the community's at risk because the archives can be entirely lost, and they have been. So as we know, uh, what do we call news reporting? The first draft of history, right? Well, we are in a situation now where all too often, the very history, the very history of these communities is at risk because journalists lose control of this, uh, of their life's work because of the capricious desires of the corporations. Isn't the New York Times uh, in serious economic difficulty right now? I, I, not to my knowledge. Uh, oh, that's what I've heard. But I mean, I, and I they, that's why there have been some cutbacks on the kind of coverage that they've been doing. I mean, I would say that I do know that they have just uh, there was some upbeat news about uh, what's happened with uh, around 600 of their technical workers who have voted mm. to be represented by the CWA. And that would add on to the existing editorial base. Uh, I do think that there is a um, uh, there is a kind of rise in um, local news nonprofits. And so that's another thing that we're seeing on that. But that doesn't, those nonprofits, as we know, they also have a responsibility to provide um, a reasonable pay and benefits for that workforce. And I, my best bet is that it, it's always better if it's a union. Yeah, what about uh, unionization in other ways? Were you surprised by the outcome of the election uh, to unionize the Amazon facility in, in Bessemer, Alabama? Well, there was very good reporting in the nation that went uh, through this uh, and, and went through the play-by-play. -play. Um, I think that it's important to look at the setting. We knew that uh, going into it, Amazon has been resistant. They successfully beat an effort in 2014. They will go to any expense. And this effort was originally started uh, during the... Uh, Trump administration, and I think Amazon anticipated and enjoyed a kind of uh, laissez-faire approach by the by the Department of Labor, which was, you know, actually anti-labor. I mean, they had, um, uh, I guess, Judge Scalia's son, who is a notorious uh, management labor lawyer in charge of the Department of Labor. So they were doing things, Amazon, like hiding the number of people that are actually enrolled, uh, doing this uh, uh, really uh, nasty strategy of holding these mandatory meetings of employees and then trying to um, uh, uh, get to the find out who was supporting the union in these uh, spontaneous conversations. And then once they figured out who it was that was in favor of the union, taking their picture and their picture of their ID. I mean, all kinds of very nasty stuff. And so 
I don't think this is done. I think the retail, uh, wholesale, and department store workers are uh, have very um, meritorious claims for appeal on this. Uh, but what is instructive is the challenge that happens when you, because of the pandemic, lose the ability to do that intimate organizing living room by living room, church basement by church basement, which in right to work states like Alabama is crucial. It, it is interesting that uh, Amazon is owned by Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, which is considered a liberal newspaper. Um, but let's move on to some other things. Sure. You say that looking at the excess mortality rates is a good way to understand which municipalities were worse hit by the pandemic and, and the best metric for understanding where recovery efforts need to be directed immediately. How are they gathered? Okay, so here we're now uh, uh, far enough out from this mass death event. and we, I mean, it's still ongoing, but um, what we what epidemiologists are able to do is go and look at the five prior years, even by zip code, and excess mortality refers to the number of deaths that are experienced. And one thing we're good at, we record births and we record deaths. And so what that does is that gives you a picture of how many people died in an area in a certain period of time. And when you do that, what you'll see is that there are all kinds of, of deaths that were not necessarily linked to COVID. Because remember, um, it was a very uh, chaotic period. So many people died in those first couple of weeks at home and there was no opportunity for testing. We covered that while it was happening here on your show. And then also there were many cases where this country has systematically closed, and we forget this, closed hospitals in communities of color. That's right. And in rural areas. And so as a legacy of that, what you've seen is the level of sickness, the acuity of the people just walking around was, that's a precondition. They were sick. Uh, indeed, they were, had more chronic disease. So when this thing hit, it hit you like you were living. And so if you were marginal in terms of your health care, you die. So you can take that like a heat map. And I talked to Dr. Katz, who heads Health and Hospitals Corporation about this. That's a municipal hospital system in New York City, the largest in the country. And, and he gives it some credence that that's a way to see where did we not have the capacity required and where it jumps out at you. And he made this point in an interview that should come out next week that we have exclusively in the chief. Sorry for the plug. Uh, he points okay. out that if you look at the number of beds that were hospital beds available, say, in Elmhurst, Queens, to compare it with Manhattan, it jumps out at you. So it makes sense that if you really want to heal the nation, right, you've got to go back to those places where it was clear our failure was most profound. So it's even happening right here in our own area. Yeah, big time. Uh, as a matter of policy or just it's... Uh, well, other, I think if you cover so many of these hospital closing hearings, it was hard to get any coverage on them. I was often the only reporter there. Um, and then BAI, right? And then the Village Voice back in the day. And, you know, uh, but in general, um, this stuff happened in plain sight. And there's been a, a, some great conversations that have uh, surfaced nationally uh, and regionally related to the, uh, uh, the mortality, morbidity, and, uh, and infant mortality for African-American and uh, Black Americans and, and just how that even cuts across economic lines. So now there is a kind of growing consensus that whether or not it was deliberate, 
its results have been manifest. And so I just got off the phone uh, with a, 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 the mayor of Plainfield uh, talking about the issues. Of how they had a hospital closure there many years ago, and now it's manifest in the data. So that's why when, when Republicans and reactionaries try to keep the discussion of infrastructure down to your local bridge, that's what, just more white supremacist avoidance strategy. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large uh, here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Bob Henley, who writes for Salon and, as he pointed out, the chief leader and other news organizations and uh, reports as well on public radio stations like this. Uh, you suggest that the Biden administration should use excess mortality rates and, and other metrics that illustrate wealth inequality to consider community wellness when it's directing federal funds for infrastructure. That hasn't been done? Well, it's done through, I mean, let's face it, we're at this moment where we've just had uh, approval for some close to $2 trillion in terms of the American um, relief plan. Okay, so now we're getting ready. If, if informed sources are correct, you know, we're going to have something similar in size and scale roll out probably by September that deals with the physical infrastructure of the country. The bridges and, so, and the tunnels and such. Right. And but and to be credited to be credited by the administration, what they put out initially does have some progressive elements, which is incorporating things like community based health care, looking more broadly at how do we care uh, for our older population um, and looks at it with a broader definition. However, the counter offer that's coming from the Republicans are even paying attention and not just in their own netherworld. Uh, uh, they they have countered with this kind of straight up straight six hundred billion dollar bridge and tunnel highways, you know, just so that you know um, the dominant society can continue get, get continue to get around conveniently, uh, and but not he, dealing with this legacy issue of disinvestment in communities of color. But even the, the on the bridge and tunnel level, um, hasn't uh, the the infrastructure been gutted in certain communities based on where federal funds have been sent? Well, it's, it's actually, it's happening, there's a couple of things to sort out. Let's talk first about the great transfer of wealth that's happened through federal tax policy, where blue states, primarily Democratic states, and I, when I say that, I'm referring to New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut. If you track, we've talked about this on the show, the, where the flow of federal tax dollars go, it's no accident, surprise, surprise, it's been going to red states where people coincidentally when they retire, civil servants, people I write about, they tend to retire. And so what's happened is it's kind of ironic. The very red states that hate, um, you know, the blue states are reliant on them because they get a disproportionate share of the federal revenue. Now, at the same time, overall, the public sector has been starved because going back to Reagan, the both parties have made the world safe for multinational corporations. Job one was the amassing of wealth of these corporations. I don't care, Bill Clinton, doesn't matter who. They had the same agenda. And so now they have this great accomplishment where they have this massive wealth inequality and the percentage of taxation paid by corporations has shrunk dramatically and they astride the world like a colossus with their assets in the Cayman Islands. Has, and so has they starved the public, pardon? Has Biden addressed that at all? 
Well, I mean, Janet Yellen, give her her due. She's talking about addressing this uh, need for a global floor for these multinational corporations who made out like bandits in the last one, uh, 2017 um, tax and so-called jobs uh, uh, act that, uh, uh, that you saw Trump and McConnell push through. And so there are some conversations now about creating this kind of common floor. Because what's been happening is the various countries are turned into, like I refer to them as concierge for capital. How long would you like to stay with us to park your trillion dollars? How can we reduce our rate and make ourselves more appealing to you? Oh, great master. You note that another metric uh, is to see which communities need uh, the kind of help, uh, well, where the largest number of utilities have are getting shut off for non-payment. Right. This is something that uh, now it's- Is that what happened foggy. in Texas? Right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so you're right. Um, it's too bad I can't see you because, you know, psyches really help. Um, one of the things is that uh, we know what stressed communities look like, right? And so what we have to do now in this post-George Floyd moment is see the landscape and use the technology in new ways. So utilities like Con Edison, water utilities, they have detailed analytics about where they have been shutting off places. And it's also something that right now they've suspended shutoffs in most places, although in some places it's starting to happen. It's, it's my educated guess that if you take the excess mortality map and the map of places where utility shutoffs have been happening, you are going to find these places that have been starved of resources, that have been victims of the systemic racism you can trace right back to slavery. Nationally, hasn't infrastructure been crumbling since the 1970s? And that's been a bipartisan thing, hasn't it? Well, it's been a, um, so this always sounds weird when I say something nice about Richard Nixon. So Nixon had a couple of insights that were worth remembering. One, he gave lip service to universal basic income, which Dr. King supported. Um, he also had the concept that, you know, it would be good to have uh, a federal consciousness about the environment and revenue sharing. Well, he did and the so, EPA. He right. did the Clean Water Act, the Clean right. Air Act. Exactly. And so, so what happened good. there was at He's least good on immigration too. Right. So, so uh, one of the things that they would do is send money to local governments to do infrastructure. Over time, what happened is the United States decided to uh, become the military garrison for the world. After 9-11, they basically um, turned us into this kind of, you know, further notice war on terrorism, hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars spent deploying soldiers uh, in, in countries that most people can't find in a map. And at the same time, fell behind in basic infrastructure, left local county municipalities and state governments to their own devices and permitted them to borrow, Leonard, to borrow. And by borrowing, who could benefit from their misery, but Wall Street. Do you see a theme here, Leonard? <laughs> so um, some of the sometimes the, the good guys turn out to not always have been as good as they right. could have been, and the bad guys turn out to be not as bad as they always. Were. I'm sure that's what they're going to say about both of us when we depart this <laughs> earthly plane. 
Well, for example, didn't the late Governor Mario Cuomo begin uh, to the, the shutdown of facilities for the mentally ill in New York City? Well, and it's funny to say because that factor is so big right now in this huge debate about the status of what's happening in the city's uh, subways and, and bus system, right? In yeah, terms which of we will get perception. to. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, that. this was something, I mean, to be fair, we have to go back to um, Geraldo Rivera and that great reporting that made his name where he did find a place like Willowbrook, these horrendous things that were happening to the uh, mentally ill and the fact that they were being treated so poorly. And what came out of that was a kind of um, uh, a legal and societal consensus that we were going to close mental health facilities. And this caught on nationally and there's case law to support it. And it was the individual civil rights of the mentally ill. And we are going to create community-based alternatives that get away from the brick and mortar and the cruelty of the central asylum. And we didn't do it. Well, we did close them. We did close them. And so we've let these folks without care or regard, wander the plains across all 50 states. And then, of course, it's left to your local civil servants to deal with them. And, of course, that is not a great remedy. And so this is what we're dealing with is a legacy of conflict avoiding and denial. And it's something that was continued by every governor and mayor since Mario Cuomo. Has anybody challenged them on it or uh, has anybody explained why this has happened? Well, I think that you do see uh, with uh, First Lady Shirley McRae and Mayor de Blasio an articulation in the form of Thrive that critics say was a huge amount of money that was spent and it's not clear where it went. There has been a change in rhetoric, but I can't tell you how many stories I've done, and it's particularly hard hitting for the civil service. Uh, Dear Arroyo, EMT. Um, community uh, inspiration, who was killed a couple of years back because um, a young man um, that was had was on domicile uh, was staying in a kind of uh, a, you know one of these places that the administration has. Um, his father had gone to the local, local precinct asking for help because the young man had stopped taking his medication, um, and he ended up uh, at least it's charged killing a dear Arroyo and, and and trying to carjack. This is not an outlier. This is the kind of thing that's been happening. Um, and so what we see is that there's no granular follow through. And so there, and this is something in talking, I've been having a lot of great conversations with mayors throughout the region um, who have some insights about how we really need to turn the corner in this George Floyd moment, in this post pandemic moment, uh, as we look towards redefining community uh, police into community healing. And so that's what we really, and that's another piece of the infrastructure, right, is how do we repurpose some of the resources that we've been assigning to this kind of draconian enforcement that's based on conflict, where you go into an area where clearly a person that has mental health issues and is in the subway is a risk to themselves and others, and that the remedy's been one thing, right? When you have, I, it's a hackney, but when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, we scoop up these individuals and we take them to Rikers. And so then all of a sudden you have corrections officer and police officers acting outside of their title and expertise. And then we're surprised that it doesn't work. And so this really is uh, uh, something that gets in the way of any kind of conversation. And that's why when I, the phrase defund the police is so unenlightened, 
because it doesn't give us the granular remedy that's required. Could federal infrastructure funds be used uh, to help in this regard uh, with the uh, with the mentally ill and also through free drug counseling and treatment? Well, it's funny. The the mayor of Edison uh, made this observation because uh, I was I'm saying to these mayors because one of the things where I feel that local journals we can be helpful, right, uh, with a national platform is giving these municipal people that are on the front lines the chance to speak directly to the national conversation. And so in Edison, which is a tens of you know a fairly large community, one of the larger ones, very diverse. Um, I asked, so how are you turning the corner here? And one of the things he said is, you know, I'm looking at my police resources, conscious of what happened with George Floyd and the legacy of the country, and figuring out how can I deconflict my police? And the first thing he said is, I've got no proactive drug treatment strategy. So he's hiring right now someone who's going to sit in his office to begin this process. Now, that's the kind of thing that we need to fund. We need the federal government to step up just like they did back in the draconian days of Clinton and fund 100,000 police officers. This is where Biden, with some progressive guidance, can begin to create, I'll give you an example, EMTs. We know that uh, the critical core for delivering services throughout the pandemic has been our EMTs. As we look forward to um, public health and making some progress, we know that it's going to be forward deploying uh, EMTs in the community. Well, why not have the federal government su support that? I mean, we're a case here in New York where FDNY EMTs historically have been existing in a plantation system where primarily women and people of color do this frontline critical work. Some of them have died as a result of the pandemic. And yet even a, a mayor who considers himself progressive like Bill de Blasio permits him to be paid tens of thousands of dollars less than white primarily white firefighters. And that's just the way it is. And so that's an example of where you can have the federal government step up and help the city and say, you know what? We believe that time has come for these people on the front lines after this mass death event to get equity. Why not have the federal government pay the gap between what the city can afford and what they're paying, the city's paying firefighters who also are doing important work, but make some $85,000 compared to an EMT who may be bringing forty or 48000 if they work all the overtime they can. Do you think that's likely with the current Congress? Well, Congress, Congress, the thing is that they're moving so much money, Leonard, that there's an opportunity, there's a lot of relief that can be done through the, the way the regulations are worked. They're moving so much money down there that that's why it's important for local voices and labor and immigrant rights groups to be at the table. And I would say... It's a very exciting time. I mean, I, I can't believe that, and it's underreported, but just in the last couple of weeks, a very dynamic um, coalition of immigrant rights groups like Align and uh, the AFL-CIO NERC and DC-37 SEIU successfully managed to, uh, and with faith-based groups, of course, um, managed to get the state of New York to raise taxes on the wealthy, four point some odd billion dollars, and in the same budget, Leonard, give two point one billion dollars to the undocumented immigrant community, the essential workers that we all talk caring so much about, but the federal programs cut out. The state of New York did that, Leonard. That's revolutionary. Yeah. That would not have happened just a year ago. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
guess that song indicates that uh, following the news is always can always be a bit upsetting. Uh, but uh, it's important to know what's going on. And uh, my guest today is the journalist Bob Henley, who reports on political and economic developments for Salon, the chief leader and other news organizations. He's a regular on this show and has done quite a bit of, of public radio as well. Um, doesn't you, you were bringing up the MTA earlier. Doesn't the MTA pay out a substantial amount uh, of its annual revenue in interest on loans every year? Yeah, I've seen some numbers that it's like, um, I could be wrong, but it's like 20% of the revenue goes to debt service. It's something wow. that um, is a big part of what holds back the uh, um, the ability to invest in it uh, and to keep it running. I mean, that's the other thing we deal with, these cycles of neglect that come back in such a way. And uh, I mean, that's one of the things we're dealing with now is the legacy of disinvestment in the system. And uh, it's something Wall Street doesn't mind at all. And it's also like, I, I think we talked on, on this program, um, uh, I was hopeful that, you know, New York State has on the books uh, since 1905, something called the, stand, uh, the stock transfer tax, which was put in place by a Republican governor back when there was a $5 million budget crisis. Those were halcyon days. Uh, <laughs> And um, it was happily in place, a nickel went towards, you know, out of the $100 transaction. And then 1981, Democrats, I know it seems like I just hate anyone who's got a party, but they carry in uh, Mayor Beam were like, well, let's just give it back and let rebate it back to Wall Street. So over the last Why? 10 years, what was, the, what was the rationale there? Well, it was coming out of a time where they were so afraid, and you've heard this before, that the large wealthy people are going to leave us alone in the wilderness, Leonard. They'll be go. They can go anywhere and they might leave us and the king will leave the castle and then the serfs will be left alone. I mean, this is, <laughs> we know the song, right? Um, and so as a consequence, um, they thought this would be a way of, of getting them to stick around. It's also, I think, helpful because usually the campaign contributors that uh, feather the nest of these individuals giving us these, uh, these messages um, and so it stayed that way for a long period of time. The assemblyman stack um, up Schenectady with dozens of other members got it revived to just stop sending it back. And then um, we did have Senator Sanders uh, on the Senate side also trying to get it through. Labor groups backed it. But in the final analysis, it was, you know, too radical. And so when I asked Governor Cuomo about it, he was like, he didn't know anything about it, didn't know what it was. But the reality is that's an example of where it, you know, I think Solomon Steck's staff said some $138 billion was given back to Wall Street in the last 10 years. Okay. And so that was while we were closing hospitals and communities of color. We made choices. They were bad. We have to hold people accountable for that. Governor Cuomo and uh, Mayor de Blasio both say the subways are safe. And, and the mayor complains that the MTA is discouraging New Yorkers from returning to the subways. Well, so this debate really came up in um, sharply in the uh, was uh, on the MTA uh, uh, public hearing, and so you had there a situation where the transit chief O'Reilly, who the NYPD's point person with the police, about twenty five hundred transit officers in the NYPD, about another several hundred that are assigned to uh, the MTA police, and so. What's happened is this this tabloid argument, right? And so this is the Punch and Judy show. Uh, we'll give it to you just in basics if you haven't had time or been having a life. 
during the time that's been going on. But hmm. on the side of the mayor and the NYPD, the idea is that they have statistics that show that uh, the number of serious crimes that are index crimes, those are index crimes, those are the special curated index crimes, those are the big ones, um, are down. And then you have the folks led by Sarah Feinberg, who's the interim New York City transit uh, person, um, who will point out that, well, ridership is down by millions. And if you take the number of crimes um, and apply it to that matrix, then we have not seen declining crime. Now, there's a whole other universe that exists, uh, which is the experience of riders and workers. Those are the people I write about. And the workers have been experiencing from the TW Local 100 an, a really bad situation where they are spit on, okay, where they get kicked, where they get, you know, have their head grabbed while they're trying to close the door on a subway train that they're running. And they go to the police to file a complaint and they're told it's not a crime, it's harassment. And so this experience that's lived large by so many people every day is not reflected, I know it's going to surprise you, Lender, in the official <laughs> data. So that's how you can have all this stuff happening. So to review, we've had a corrupt political class that let real estate run up as high as it wanted and to run the show, getting rid of all the SRO housing. And like I used to live in the Hotel Empire across from Lincoln Center, all that disappear and turn into luxury housing for the wealthy that aren't here anyway, except between Christmas and New Year's. And then deinstitutionalize the mentally ill to run as they would like and as they can through the subways. And then we're just kind of washing our hands of it and send the police to put those people in jail. Have I missed anything? Some uh, of the subway workers have been stabbed. I guess that's not just a violation. Right. But we're also uh, just hearing a lot of news reports about Asians being concerned about their safety on mass transit now. Yeah, that's actually something, one category where the chief, uh, the NYPD transit police chief did say that there was a spike. And so part of it, and, and you have to just look again at what we've been through, you have a national media platform, ill-informed, driven by racism and by profiteering that has promulgated all kinds of stuff against an entire race of people on a phony narrative about a disease that we want to blame them for. And so no surprise, um, you're going to have this kind of thing. And so there, I mean, I was, I was heartened to see that even the United States Senate managed to pass legislation to address this, but we have a long way to go. And, and then truth is that our ugly history has been one of exclusion. Interestingly, one prominent senator voted against the law. That was the, it was the most bipartisan vote ever. What was it, 99 to <laughs> yeah, 1? Exactly. And only Josh Hawley. Uh, I wonder what uh, part of the electorate he's hoping to appeal to by voting uh, against protecting <laughs> Asians from, from being attacked. Maintaining a perfect record. <laughs> well, uh, it, you were kind of leaning towards talking about uh, how the subway system is a place where the effects of the homeless crisis is particularly apparent. Well, yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I spent, um, you know, one of the things that happens, you put a lot of work into a story and it's the luck of when it gets published. So um, I was working with city and state on this in-depth story um, at Penn Station, which meant that I went in early to work um, at the chief leader a couple of times a week for like a year. And I spent time at Penn Station because that's where I get dropped off from New Jersey Transit on the way down to 277 Broadway. And I spent time getting to know all the people that work there, 
the undocumented people that clean the place up, the TWU members that keep the subway safe, the Amtrak cops, all of them. I just became part of the furniture because that's what I do. And I just got to watch what was happening. And so you had this um, this nonprofit charity, Bowery, um, I forget the rest of the name, but they had a, a presence there. They were getting millions of dollars to provide care for the homeless. And the door was always closed. And I got to talk with the homeless people who would tell me about how they were shuffled around. And then I talked to the the guys and gals from the TWU who are, you know, they have that job of um, they're the ambassadors, right? So they're in those high volume areas or outside the booth. They're trying to help you if you can't read English or if you've got your kids and you're trying to get through with your uh, baby carriage, they facilitate the movement of the city. And they were telling me, not for nothing, that what they were seeing was that these these um, consultants and these nonprofit types for these that the city throws all this money at, their idea of placement was to actually swipe the homeless folks with their carts into the subway system, Leonard. Oh that my. was a placement that we paid for. And uh, now that the trains are shut down or have been shut down in the middle of the night, where do those people sleep? Well, I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that you have this situation where the city and you've covered this and this has been on a lot related to uh, trying to uh, requisition existing hotels and and locating folks mm. who are in housing crisis. Um, I, I think that um, then there is a, I think now it's down to just a couple of hours that the subway's closed. And I think you're going to see it go 24 seven pretty soon. Uh, it's important to you know also this, the trains have continued to run during that period of time, moving people around deadhead and the rest. Um, I would say that, I mean, ultimately, um, the thing that, that we need to do here to build confidence and to really uplift the economy, and I, I know this sounds radical, but we need to have fast, uh, free mass transit. The only way to bring this back and to continue to um, have it be uh, dynamic is to make it so that it's not just like with the Staten Island Ferry, um, because working people need the help and we need a confidence builder. And that is the way that you could, you know, you could begin to see the system revitalized. And also it, it is a thing that so often when you have things like fare evasion, and a lot of times, yes, there are actors that are doing it because they're knuckleheads and, and they're just ill-informed and, and just trying to get over but an awful lot of people are just trying to get back and forth to work or, or people that I've talked to who are, who are, you know, may have a, and so that's, these are the kinds of things we've got to think about. We've really got to be innovative. here. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is one of our regulars on the show, Bob Henley. You mentioned the Staten Island ferry. Now Staten Island is the most conservative of all the boroughs. And yet, um, isn't uh, the ferry going to be renamed in honor of Dorothy Day, who was yes. <laughs> a, a, a rather to the left politically? Yes, yes she's my my patron that saint. Well, well, it's funny. I would say that I mean I don't talk much about religion, but I would say that I'm kind of affiliated with the Berrigan end of the Catholic Church, and so the idea that I was kind of done found it came out of nowhere was one of those. That's why you tune into the mayor's press presser all the time because you just never know what hijinks he's up to. But on this one day, he talked about one of the uh, fairies being named for Dorothy Day. Uh, and of course, she had, um, was a, a journalist of conscience uh, and also, you know, a faith leader and also created the Catholic Worker and uh, created this this farm on, in Staten Island. And 
was a voice for, you know, supported labor, um, and in many ways, the, you know, created a framework for conversation about the way that people of conscience can be in the world, right? And so the idea that the city should uplift her uh, this way is great. Mm -hmm. She's also in consideration for sainthood. Uh, but it, what I find interesting is that that ferry is free, right? And so it's a way that a lot of people, working class folks, essential workers, that's one thing that they, they don't have to take money out of their pocket to serve us to get to work, right? And so you, can you imagine the power of having that be the situation for all working people, right? I mean, I just think the stock transfer tax, if we just had the guts to collect that nickel, would be a good down payment on it. And for heaven's sake, Leonard, do you know what? They've had this tax in London since the 1600s. And have you heard anyone say, you know, London lacks the competitive edge. They're worried the markets might leave London. No one says that. On another front, how many people are running for the Democratic nomination to be the next mayor of New York City? I've been seeing so many TV ads, I've stopped trying to count. Well, I had I had handy and I lost it and I don't want to try to uh, mess with the configuration that's up now unless we not be able to talk to each other. But I saw that there were a dozen that made the ballot and so there are and that's quite just a the few. Democrats? The yeah, and that's Democrats. Then we have Mr. Mateo, uh, the former the restauranteer and former taxi kind of uh, advocate running uh, against Curtis Lewa, who we all know, uh, for the Republican nomination. So it's a very crowded field. I used to work with Curtis Lewa. <laughs> At WNYC, that's right. Yeah. How that work out? about that right now. Well, uh, it was odd. <laughs> so I can say his show following my show. But anyway, okay. So um, Andrew, Andrew Yang is still the leading candidate, isn't he? Although he's so, been getting a lot of bad press recently. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that. Um, it's funny. I mean, let's... I don't want to talk about this as a conventional horse race way, but there is something that that Yang is benefiting from, which is the general fatigue that Democrats might feel if you look at on one level in Albany, you have Governor Cuomo, a paragon of virtue, a representative of all that's well, all that just is about the Democratic Party. And locally you have wait, wait, wait. Mayor do you de think that he's do you think that Cuomo is going to serve out his uh, full term? Despite well, all the I mean, listen, he's he seems to have uh, managed to bend the arc of the news wave and he's kind of uh, uh, photo opt the legislature into submission. Notice that they're all beginning to show up as props. Um, all he has to do is say, hey, I'm opening up a sewer plant near you and they line up. Mm. They can't resist the chance. So and, you know, things like and, we're going to have a vaccination site. You want to be there. Right. Even though they just said he should resign. It all and, and, a lot of that. Good. And I keep on receiving emails from him telling me about the current state of the coronavirus in New York. Yes. And so, but back to the Yang thing that you raised. So yeah. that, I think that there is fatigue and it's also with the democratic, you know, what's out there and, and the, and the establishment as such, it's also too important to remember that Bill de Blasio was elected in 2013 uh, initially in, with that primary and he got less than 10% of the registered Democrats, okay? And he didn't do much better when he ran for re-election. So you have a party architecture that was kind of, that was shaky. And so what's happened new has been uh, with uh, AOC's transformative win, the ability of the progressives um, and the socialists to basically redirect the, the state Senate, right? 
and to have some effect in the assembly. So you're seeing, and this is gonna be the first citywide election with this reconfiguration in place. And it's anyone's guess how it's gonna work. The other thing that's in this that has to be looked at is what does ranked voting do? And so that's a new animal, right? And so we see already Mr. Yang making the, I think, very savvy choice to mention the Daily News that I think it was um, uh, the uh, Commissioner Garcia was the person he mentioned as his number two. This is a person who has um, been considered by the media as like a, a second tier candidate, but someone who actually demonstrated uh, when she was running sanitation and helping stand up the feeding centers uh, during COVID is a very competent person. So what it's done already is begin to have the people running for office think in collaborative terms even before they win the election. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Well, Yang uh, is probably the best known because he ran for the Democratic nomination for president. But um, there's a question about whether he's really a progressive, although he supports a universal income. Hasn't he also hired advisors with checkered pass in both policing and the yellow cab industry? And didn't he support the plan to bring Amazon to the city? Well, and I think, yeah, so those are the kinds of things that you get when you get granular about a candidate, and it is Bradley Tusk you're talking about, who has this, you know, this history with being involved with the the big um, platform-based Ubers and Lyfts, and uh, there is this, and he and he does risk um, taking on this kind of uh, this kind of support from that sector of the economy, and it does put at risk his image as someone who's thinking out of the box and and thinking about something like universal basic income, which has, you know, is something that uh, Martin Luther King spoke to, uh, Reverend Barber has spoken to it. And so he has to be careful with that alchemy, right? And so, yeah, and, and then that's why there's also the issue that did he seek uh, his leaving the city? Was that something that um, was not, you know, does that, is that's not the kind of thing that you wanna uh, broadcast? Um, and so he also hasn't been able to make significant inroads in labor as such. And so certainly his comments, I think, that where he faulted the UFT as, as holding back the recovery in terms of returning from uh, and, and getting schools back to in-person instruction. Um, and so, you know, that so that's all the baggage he brings to the table. That said, he does have a core of supporters and he does seem to have uh, he's uh, this ability to command the national spotlight, which New Yorkers respond to. It's almost like something they expect from their candidates. Are all the candidates pretty much equal? Do you think uh, we have very little time? Are they are they equal? Are um, there any that you might be consider a bit dangerous as a mayor? I, I don't. I don't. I think that no. I, I don't think that I. I, I wouldn't um, make a, 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 a shotgun comment like that. What, what okay. I would say is that I wish that we could spend more time digging down on the policies that they're talking about than talking about their electoral prowess, particularly because so many of them don't really have, you know, uh, any kind of uh, track record. Some, for some, it's entirely a, a, a new thing. That, you know, running on that. Kind of One of them is actually running on the fact that he doesn't have a track record. Right, right. Uh, just right. just right, one more exactly. thing. One more thing. I've heard rumors that Chris Christie is considering launching a Republican presidential campaign as the non, not Trumper. Um, do you think that's likely? Well, not with anyone who has any kind of uh, long-term memory. Uh, <laughs> I think that, you know, 
he could try that, but it is true that what will work for him is I understand that one of the symptoms of people that have had COVID is foggy memory. So if that constituency mm-hmm. is large enough, he's going to do really well. Now, Bob, people can uh, follow you on Twitter at Stuck Nation, right? Yes, sir. And what I else? Also, right. What and, else? Uh, StuckNation.com. Yeah. Exactly. And then also at the chief leader. And also I, at Stuck Nation, do take direct messaging. And I'm particularly interested now, May 3rd, the mayor has blown the whistle for city workers that are working remotely to return. And so we're very much interested in what the experience is of this workforce. And so we want to hear about that because it's so essential that this workforce speak up so we can hold government accountable. Bob, thank you again for being such a great guest. I look forward to the next time you're on our show. It was fun. Take care. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Jesse Lent, my executive producer, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can, you'll can you also find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me your comment about something you've heard on the show or simply want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As most of our listeners are, I'm sure, aware by now, WBAI is currently experiencing major financial difficulties because of of the pandemic. So we are asking anyone who isn't already supporting the station to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 to become a member. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about books or documentaries or a topic that's important but has received little attention? Do it for us. Do it for WBAI. Do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. So once again, that number to call uh, to make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount is 212-209-2950. Or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. From all of us at the show, thank you. Monday will be the 500th show that I've done on WBAI. So to celebrate, my executive producer, Jesse Lent, will be interviewing me about my 44 years in radio. And we'll be listening back to some of the highlights from our first 500 shows. I hope you can join us for that. And if there's anything you'd like to... Jesse, to ask me, please email us at leonardlopate at wbai.org. Have a great weekend.